Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 90 of Yoga Land. So, Jill Miller is back. This is part two of our fascia exploration. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly encourage that you do. That's episode 89. On this episode, we get into more of the application of this knowledge. So I think it's pretty clear that we can all agree that the fascia system has been overlooked, that it's it's important. But I wanted to know from Jill more details about how to care for it, how to incorporate this knowledge into your daily embodiment routine, into your yoga practice. So we get into all of those details in this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Jill. I'm so happy to have you back. Thank you for coming back. (laughs) It's the best recurring conversation I have. (laughs) Oh, good, 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 good. I know. I mean, it could, I feel like this could be another hour long. We'll see. We'll see how much we get done, how quickly. I, I think it would be helpful to back up a bit. In your book, you, you lay out the layers of fascia really well. You explain that really well. Can you walk us through that a little bit? I think going through the layers makes the application and the sensing of them so much more palpable for all humans. You know, fascia has been with you since you're 50 cells old. And as you develop embryonically into a human being baby, there are different, basically striations, I suppose, of the tensions of the fascia. So the one that's most accessible is the stuff that's right underneath the skin. Your fascial tissues, if you just pinch your belly or your forearm or your cheek, what you're pinching is your fat, the fatty layer, the adipose tissue that's surrounding all of the firmer structures underneath is called your superficial fascia. Superficial because it's closer to the surface. And when you pinch it, you can actually twist it and wring it and move it from side to side or up and down. Um, Right now I'm pinching the superficial fascia on the back of my tricep. You can, and that's really, if you actually, if you touch that, it's pretty um, spilly and runny. But then if you would try to pinch the fat on the sole of your foot, let's say like at your heel, it's not really spinny and mushy. It's actually rather firm. And that's because the fat cells, the adipose cells embedded in the superficial fascia are smaller and tinier. On your belly, they're looser. They're more globular. On your tush, they're more globular. Mm. And then you have some areas of the superficial fascia that are incredibly thin, like the top of your forehead. You don't really think of your forehead as, oh, I got a chubby forehead. You know, it's very, very thin there. So the superficial fascia, it's notable because it has loft. It has thickness. And uh, my anatomy mentor, Gil Headley, he really talks about, this is your, your, your cozy blanket that's all over you. It really gives your body the shape we know. And in one of the lectures that he does, this is back in the day. I'm not sure if he's doing this particular lecture anymore, but he actually shows you the evolution of our acceptance of our superficial fascia body over the course of hundreds of years. And he shows it in the images of the 
Columbia Pictures woman, the woman holding the torch when you go to a movie and it's done by Columbia. Yeah. You see, she looks like the Statue of Liberty. And she used to be very rotund and rosy and round. And now she is nearly skeletal. Huh. So there's, and, and that is like in direct relationship to our cultural embracing or demonizing of fat. Right. So the superficial fascia, the texture of it is spongy, it's springy, but it's different all over your body. Do we know right? why? So, like, do we know why it's spongier and globier on your tummy and your butt than other places? Aside from like just keeping us warm? That's a really good question. <laughs> the buttocks are of particular interest to me since I just <laughs> had mine cut open. Oh. You know, th- that's a food supply. Right. So the, the, the fat provides local, quick local energy. So my suspicion is that maybe your forehead needs less, you know, you have, while you do have some pretty powerful muscles in your forehead, you know, your corrugator and the stuff that makes you look like concerned, your corrugator is not helping you walk and your butt is, <laughs> Yeah, and- you know, maybe it has to do with that. I'm not a fat specialist. So I think we'd have to, you have to bring a, uh, adipose specialist on your, yeah podcast to answer that. But there's also within the superficial layer, you've got, you've got nerves, you've got vasculature, you have a ton of uh, lymphatic duct. I, I mean, what gets, what interests me because of my own history as a bulimic is the dislike and the bias and the aggressiveness that we take in our mental constructs of what fat is. And, you know, I have a number of friends and students who've had liposuction and you know what that is is a is a scarring you're creating scarring in that fatty layer and a scar is a scar it can have some really detrimental effects especially uh, in the healing process of the thickening the collagen new collagen gets laid down to help bandage what was destroyed and that scar comes with its own new problems Hmm. yeah so liposuction can be a cosmetic, you know, savior for many people. The, you know, your mind is very connected to your image, but it doesn't come without, you know, without consequences. I'm dealing with a really gnarly scar right now for my own surgery, and the fatty layer is loaded with sensory neurons. And, you know, sometimes when I'm in a really bad mood, the scar hurts more. And when I'm feeling great, it hurts less. So there's an emotional reactivity naturally through our limbic system, through the peripheral nervous system. And we don't know enough about nothing. I just, a little bit, I'm, I'm not a big, like, let's give yourself a scar if you don't have to type of person. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I think that, yeah, that fear of the superficial layer and like that fear of fat. I mean, I heard Gil Headley talk about that and it was so sweet to hear a man talk about that. Like we just kind of push that layer aside, like it's unimportant in some way and when it's part of our body. And I noticed for myself, I I think for me, it's so connected to the aging process. Like my challenge with it is connected to the aging process because I didn't have layers 20 years ago. I just didn't. And I do now. And it's sort of like, when you say layers, you mean just like what do you I mean can like, really my like, like I can really or? yeah like I can really squeeze my butt my belly like my my daughter and I play this game where like my belly talks to her <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> you know Around because it's like button. yeah because it's like yeah yeah and 
it's hard to deal with your body changing, period. End of story. It just is. And it's, and especially in our culture where we don't really acknowledge aging as a, as a beneficial process in any way, you know, and that's like anything, like there are great parts about it and there are not so great parts about it, but we don't need, we don't really focus on the great parts about it. We just kind of glorify youth, you know? Yeah. I mean, you told me the story before we started of your daughter losing her tooth, you know, bone is connective tissue also. And it's like every moment where there's loss, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we're remodeling and oh, it's like, you think, when you think of remodeling a home, are you like, yeah, I'm going to remodel. Or you're like, oh my God, right. I've got to remodel my house. There's so much work involved. And I guess there's a, there's a little bit of suffering and struggle and which is very poetic and amazing, but we coming to terms with, or, you know, just being in the acceptance of cells living and dying all the time. I mean, maybe if you go down to a cellular level, it will make you have more compassion for the whole house of yourself, mm -hmm. you know, the whole hosting of the evolution. Yeah, man, I, the psychological stuff with aging is some of it's fun and then some of it's really un, unfun. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. But it is helpful to, like you said, to think about it on this level of like, it's a layer of your being just mm -hmm. period. It's just like, it is just part of your being. Yeah. And it's fascinating to watch to watch a change. So I'm a, I'm a texture junkie. And so what I would, in terms of, you know, the layers of your fascia, well, obviously by now your, your listeners know, I love rolling on balls, but I also love using my fingers and touching every single portion of the body and feeling the slipperiness or the slidiness or the springiness of that superficial fascia layer. And I really advocate that everybody does this, you know, touch the skin on the side of your neck, give it a little pinch, see how much shift it has. Because the shift of the superficial fascia is not just, it's not a novel thing. This is happening ubiquitously all over your tissues at a, yet another zone of fascia. And that second zone of fascia is sometimes called an interface, or sometimes it's called, I like to call it a transition zone, but where the superficial fascia is able to slide forward or backward or to the right or to the left is another fascial layer that is not fat rich. And sometimes it's called loose fascia, but it's a transition zone between zone three. So let's get back to zone two in a minute. Zone three is the deep fascia, the fascia profunda. And the deep fascia does is not bound by adipose cells. The fascia looks extremely organized. It has a duct tape appearance or sometimes a feather-like appearance, but there is the very organized way that the fascial, uh, the actual layers within deep fascia have angulations that promote distension and recoil. Well, and the superficial fascia, by the way, also promotes distension and recoil. It lengthens and then it shortens. It can, it can transmute. That's why your body can change shape, although you always return to form, right? You're able to stretch and then you return to form. Mm -hmm. You're able to contract and you return to form. So that's the amazing thing about the elasticity, the internal elasticity of the collagen and elastin molecules within your fascial tissues. So the deep fascia one of the most famous deep fascias that most people can identify is the IT band, the iliotibial band. I actually wrote an article for Yoga Journal about the IT band last year. So if you want more detail on that, go and look at that up on, online. But the other famous deep fascia people are familiar with is the plantar fascia. Mm, yes. 
Everybody knows it's about so the plantar true. fasciitis, right? So Why? Because they know about the disease of it. They've heard of plantar fasciitis. Right. Like no one's walking around thinking about their plantar fascia until it hurts. Right, right. But I think by the time you're 24, you've heard the term plantar fasciitis. Why? Because you played volleyball in high school or your boyfriend played, uh, you know, whatever, rugby, basketball. Somebody hurt their foot in dance. And your plantar flat fascia became overstretched and then it tried to pull itself together and it got inflamed and you were hurting. So the deep, deep fascia, you know, has the sensibility, but there's only so much it can take before it starts to tear and break. Deep fascia is enervated. It also has blood flow. And if it starts getting irritated, it's going to hurt. So you have a lot of pain sensing neurons in there as well. So our deep fascia, if you want to touch it, you can take your hand and find the lateral thigh, if we can talk about the IT band, and you can try to stroke and strum from side to side. And you might be able to actually feel, because the deep fascia is so strong there, you might be actually able to feel some of the texture of it. But another deep fascia structure that is totally available for you to touch ladies, let's go to the ladies, is your labia majora. Your labia majora are made from multiple layers of deep fascia. It's not, I know, isn't that weird? That's crazy. I've never heard that before. How do we not know that? That's crazy. Well, because you're not, I mean, we're not, you're injuring your your labia majora potentially on a bicycle or a weird fall or, you know, so the other, other deep fascia structure that everybody can touch. Gentlemen, please, ladies, please touch your earlobes. So you touch your earlobes, that's a deep fascia structure. There's really not an abundance of superficial fascia layer. In fact, there, it's fact, it's a mostly skin, a sliding membrane, and then you have the layers and layers of the deep fascia knit together. And that gives you your dangling earlobes. So when you pierce your ears, you scar the deep fascia there. But even so, if you take, if you, you can pinch it and twist it and there's a lot of movement available to it. But if you, if you kind of touch lightly and you touch the little furriness of the skin of your earlobe, and then you try to slide your fingers past each other with the earlobe in between, you'll feel that there is some amount of sliding there, Yeah. but a lot less than if you grab your belly fat and twist it around and wring it around. Right. Right. So anyway, that's just interesting to, to, again, familiarize yourself with the textures and the limitations of the movement are the sliding zone between the deep and the superficial. And I'm getting back to this middle layer, the second layer, the second zone, which is the loose fascia, the fascial interface. So this is the connections between the deep and the superficial. And the connection between this deep and the superficial, Gill's now calling this perifascial membranes. But if you want a more simple term, I like to call it a transition zone or loose fascia. And this has a sort of a cobweb-like appearance when it's tractioned, right? So that it, it allows for motion between layers. I, now I've lost how you said it, but are you, are you saying that the transition zone determines the glide kind of between this superficial and the deep fascia? Yes. And the amount of tension within the transition zone. So you can also have p- areas of thicker stitching or pinning. I call in general, I call fascia your seam system. So if you have areas that are uh, end zones of one continuity to another, you might actually have a really hard stop. So it's not like you're, everything is slipping at the same rate. You also have 
the way your body forms different structures, you're going to have more rigidity in some naturally in some areas and less rigidity in others in that transition zone. You also might have areas that are, are pinned and, and the, the pinning would be there's some blood vessels going through there. There's a larger nerves going through there. And so there has to be additional fascial stitches that prevent too much movement there because you don't want to have uh, ruptures. Right, 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 right. Okay. And let me just say, it's easy to visualize this by viewing some of the cadaver studies. And right. there's a big free one online, sensitively done by Gil Headley. Oh, so wow. you his YouTube channel, Somanaut, I believe it's Somanaut, S-O-M-A-N-A-U-T. Just go Somanaut, YouTube, Gil Headley, H-E-D-L-E-Y. And you'll be able to find eight, almost eight hours of his cadaver. Wow. That's dissection. so generous of him. Wow. Oh, I, he's such a hippie. He's just like, I give it all away. <laughs> And that will help educate you on some of what I'm talking about and give you a really strong visual understanding of this. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about the IT band because people are obsessed with the IT band for good reason. It's, you feel it so clearly. When we're stretching our muscles, what is happening to like the interface layer or, and, or the deep layer? What is happening is that when you are lengthening tissues, your the fascial tissue, oh gosh, okay. The thing is, it's not like, it's not always directionally concrete because the, the fibers within the fascia have multi multiple directions. And because your body is entirely stitched together constantly, you're never really just lengthening one thing. So let's say I'm trying to stretch my hamstring. So I do a forward bend and I think that I'm you know, lengthening the back of my thigh, but because the fascial tissues are enveloping, they're wrapping and they're rewrapping and interpenetrating and they're constantly connected in a radial sense on all sides. So I can't think of my hamstring as an up and down thing. I really more need to think of it as a, a spherical oblong elongation that has multiple compartments within bundles of muscle cells within this cylinder, mm -hmm. the spherical cylinder. So it's not just like a cylinder. It's like, it's like a round cylinder, it's like an egg. Yep. And so when I am doing a forward bend, not only am I tractioning or seeming to get length from behind, but because of the tension of the interrelatedness of the fascia, I get a radial stretch throughout its neighbors too. Mm -hmm. So the, the, because the fascia is always interconnected to things next to it, above it, below it, in front of it, and behind it, there is going to be translation of motion on so many different levels throughout the entire body. Mm -hmm. So when I went to PT years ago for an RSI for just like a typing, I had a lot of arm pain. She talked a lot about trying to get the tissues to glide more. So was that her referring to the inner, like the 
the level two layer of tissue that it maybe was sort of creating an infusion? Okay. Yes, sort of kind of potentially. I don't remember, Andrea, if in the first talk, did I talk about endomesium, paramesium, epimesium? Did I talk about how fascia wraps around individual muscle cells? Yes. And then groups of muscle cells and then groups of groups of muscle cells. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we can think of the loose fascia on a global level. The loose fascia is the transition zone between the superficial and the deep fascia, and it allows for sliding. But within a muscle, the endomesium, right, individual muscle cells have the ability to slide betwixt themselves. And so there is transition zoning between muscle cells. Essentially, there's a a loose fascia relationship between individual muscle cells. But then those individual muscle cells are wrapped usually pretty tightly by something called perimesium. And that perimesium uh, has a much stiffer binding, stiffer sausage casing. And so then I have muscle bundles that can also slide past one another, mm-hmm. right? And, and then muscle bundles are further wrapped into a larger representation of myofascial structure, a muscle structure, and then muscles can have sliding betwixt them. And so loose fascia, this transition zone uh, occurs wherever you have the potential for sliding, or it doesn't. So if I have over-stiffening or over-tightening, I'm not going to have the appropriate amount of motion between these structures. And the the sliding is based on the correct amount of fluid within these structures. And the main fluid that permits sliding is something called hyaluronan. So when your massage therapist or your physical therapist or your therapy ball or your roller or whatever tool you're using or your couch is applying pressure with shear, and shear is the action of creating traction in very, very slow application of this, you encourage the movement of fluids in front of the pressure. So, okay. Yeah, okay. So for example, if I'm putting my hand, everybody do this with me, I'm putting, if I'm sticking my hand, my right hand, I'm pushing it, directly at a 90 degree angle down into my forearm. Okay. That would just be something what we call sustained compression. That's just pressure. But in order to move the hyaluronic acid to help improve sliding, I need to actually change that vector more towards like a 45 degree angle. All right. And then, so I apply the pressure and that 45 degree angle. And then all of a sudden in front of my fingers, I see a bunch of buckly skin. Do you see a bunch of buckly skin in front of your fingers? Well, you know what? is underneath that skin, it's ripples like throwing a stone into a pond, right? So you have forces moving the fluids ahead and that's part of what's creating that ripple. And you're a big, thick pond. You're a big, glidey, amazing pond. And so when I do that type of pressing, I'm moving the fluids ahead of where my fingers are. So the fluids are actually getting to work before your tool, which are your fingers or your ball or your stick or your couch, are even getting to the area. So the fluids actually help to pre-lubricate so that you can get the tissue work working. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's what she was doing is improving the fluid, the fluidity um, of the fluid content in those tissues. 
Okay. I have one more kind of, uh, I mean, this is, might sound like a dumb question. I know there are no dumb questions, but I just want to kind of clarify, you know, we've been taught with our muscles that we want to stretch them and we want to strengthen them. So do we want to do the same with our fascia or is it, do we just think of it as like its own living connective tissue that does its thing? It's going along whether you think about it or not. So that's the good news. Yeah. But there are things that we can probably do to improve our hygiene of it in some ways. And, you know, one of the things that I think about really frequently is reconstructing loft to the whole of your system. What is loft? It's fluffing a pillow, right? You have a, a down pillow at home and you, you kind of scrunch it and toss it around a little bit and fluff it up and reconstitute the billowiness hmm. of it. So we sit on our butts a lot. Yeah. What do you think sitting on your butt does to your, to your butt and the fascia surrounding your butt? Yeah. Compresses it. Squishes it. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It squishes it and it moves fluid out and the long, slow process of lengthening the collagen fibers. They adapt to those pressures sitting with your body at a keyboard. Same thing. Our bodies adapt to the pressures. We conform to our forms. So one of the things I like to do, I mean, I obviously I love to train my muscles. I love to get stronger, but I like to fluff my pillows. I like that. <laughs> so I want to be, I want to be fluffy. I don't need buns of steel. I want, in yoga tune up, we say we want fluffy buttocks. Huh. Um, you know, we want springy blood flow, ha happy collagen, nice bouncy adipose cells in there. And so I do a lot of, I would say plucking. Huh. And in the role model, what we call this is, is skin rolling or shear, or, or even we do a, a something called plowing. It's a ball plow. And these are all methods of restoring the volume. Jean-Claude Gumberto talks about your fascia system as a volume system, restoring the volume so that you're, you're, you're tractioning in an outward way and not continuing to compress, 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 and squinch yourself into a smaller version of yourself. It's all flat and pancake-like. <laughs> that is so helpful. That's really, really helpful. I love that like image and that, that, that feeling of the idea of fluffing yourself back up because we all know what we feel like when we feel compressed, when we've been really static for whatever reason, when we feel run down. And then when we do a yoga practice and we come out feeling like, whoo, totally renewed and refreshed. And I've always thought of it as like the movement of prana and, you know, energy and subtle body. But like, I also like that it's probably in part due to the, like you said, this like fluffing of the tissues and oxygenating them and yeah. From, from, and, and getting blood to flow, but blood is nourishment. Fluids are nourishment. Like whatever, whatever we can do to improve the flow of fluids to our tissue so that they can eliminate and evacuate the poop and the pee, and they can refill with the nutrients that need to be there. So let's fluff universe, hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> Fascia fluff universe. <laughs> and that goes back to also my, my deep belief in, you know, finding ways of talking to and treating and palpating our bodies in ways that respect the 
you know, respect the body's being and not attacking it and not drilling it, not ripping it to shreds, not blasting it, not trying to damage it, but to try to restore, to tap into your regeneration through a regenerative uh, process. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to fit into a dress at the Oscars. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I'm like, this is the opposite of that. And that might terrify people, but that goes back to our bias against fat. And this isn't about, this isn't about, this is restoring your volume. My God, I want to be, I want to fill my volume. Mm. I want to, I don't want to be all sticky and compressed and shellacked and flattened and stressed. Mm-hmm. Right. So there you have it. I, I love be- it. That's so great. And yes, I mean, it's true as women, like it's nice to think about, and and men too, of course. I, I I hope that you know I don't come across as only talking about women, but but it, especially for women, the idea of taking up space is not something that's really widely embraced. So it's nice to think internally about this as like yes, you know, grounding yourself, feeling grounded, and feeling full. I like that. That psychological leap you just did, that sociological leap is huge. So yeah, let's fluff ourselves so that we can take up the space that, you know, 52% of us are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Okay. So getting down to like just more nitty gritty application. So for people out there who are listening and, and have a regular yoga practice and a lot of people are teachers what are some simple ways they can apply this knowledge to their daily routine and their daily physical and embodiment practice? I know that the balls, but like specifically kind of what are some ideas starting place? Obviously using a tool. And of course I love the role model balls because they are tender to the touch. Things that apply that pluck and fluff don't have to even be a ball. Like my yoga mat, my manduka mat, any of the, any of any yoga mat has grip. So you can take it and use it as on a, as much bare skin as possible and put it on. Like you're putting on a, uh, a towel after the shower, press it against you and then try to slide it while it sticks to your skin. And that will actually create some real amazing awareness from the skin down to that sliding zone of that between the superficial and the deep, or you can look at your cat or your dog and you see how they roll onto the ground and they scratch and wriggle their back against the grass. Part of what they're doing is they're moving that sliding zone. So you can get down on the ground, you can get down on the rug, you can get down on uh, your yoga mat and you can try to do different rubbing and squirmy type of things, not to slide, but to actually find that stretch barrier. So the stretch barrier, I, let me clarify, within your transition zone or that loose fascia zone, there's a certain level of traction that you'll get. And you know, if you slide your pinch your form and slide it to the left or the right, there's a, it stops at mm-hmm. a certain place, right? And that's your stretch barrier. And if you hold the stretch there, if you hold the soft tissue there for several seconds and breathe deeply and try to calm yourself down, then you might be able to move it just a little bit more, another few degrees. So trying to potentially improve the movement at your stretch barrier. Uh, I do this on the yoga mat all the time. 
my scar is so huge and it's on such a, well, not huge. I mean, but I've never had a scar like this. It's three and a half inches long, uh, relatively small <laughs> in hip surgery. But so I've been taking my pants off, taking my underwear off, laying down on the yoga mat and then doing kind of like, I look like I'm break dancing in slow motion. <laughs> and then when I hit the break, right, I've got my Janet Jackson music on and I hit the break when I feel that I'm at the end of my stretch barrier and I rest there and I breathe. And then I try to create micro movements that will move the superficial fascia of the buttocks in every possible vector. So these are, these are some simple ways that are not expensive at all, because you probably in yoga land, most everybody probably has yoga mat or can find one at, at somewhere maybe. Yeah. But something that has, that can grip your skin, even a wood floor potentially can grip your skin. So you don't need to buy expensive equipment or even inexpensive equipment to do this. You can just do this natively. I, I really liked that description of working on that scar. It's like a very you know, tangible description. So when you're moving the superficial fascia, that's like a light feeling, right? Like you said, you're not grinding into it. You're not shredding the issue. You're not Mm -mm. like, you're not actually, it sounds like you're not even actually trying to get to the deep fascia at that point. It's, it's being got even with light touch because it's all connected because it's all connected. And so you're actually creating you're tractioning the deep fascia because you're moving it laterally and shifting it a little bit. That's going to create that same type of sliding effect. It's not like you're, you're fluffing the pillow, but you are through pressure and motion. I think that's, I think that's such a helpful clarification because I know for myself, like if I have aches and pains and I, in the past when I rolled and things like that, like and I am, I, it is true that this was more like me eight to 10 years ago. Like I thought I had to like get in there and like, you know, kind of, yeah, I really just thought I kind of had to hammer away at something to dissolve the holding pattern or something like that. So that's really helpful. In terms of your fascial tissues, less is, is more unless you're dealing with a scar. So that's something different, but what Paul Stanley from Arizona State University, he's a fascia researcher who, his research is so applicable. You only need to traction three to six degrees past the stretch barrier to excite the formation of new, uh, to excite the organelles within the cells so that the fibroblasts start reorienting and promoting a better length tension relationship if you're looking to restore and improve motion in your body. So less is a lot more. And it also depends on like, well, am I trying to move my tissues or am I trying to impact my nervous system? Am I trying to do both things? Or, you know, if I have some pain in an area, some pain and inflammation in an area, that motion using a tool or using, using movement or using a tool can help to create a a vacuum essentially of the inflammation in the area, moving the cytokines and the basically just the cell debris out and bringing new fluids in. Mm -hmm. So much of this is about fluid flow. It's about getting the proper equilibrium of fluid flow. And so if I have an area that is dense from too much of the wrong fluids being in there, I need to somehow vacuum that out. And I vacuum that out with pressures and with movement. And I don't mean, gosh, I don't mean vacuum to sound hostile because it's 
let's think of it more like an estuary, right? So mm -hmm. an estuary is very gradual and it's so organic, that image. But essentially I want to churn, I want to churn the right amount of out with the old and with the new mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in the estuary. And, and that's really helpful when you think about aging too, because we do um, start to have less fluid, right? We're less, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, I am noticing, um, I have a situation where, because I'm on, you know, anti-cancer drugs, like I am sort of, my tissues are, I notice that my tissues are aging a little bit faster. I, I think I'm probably like 10 to 15 years ahead of what my actual age is. So I have a lot, lot, lot of daily stiffness in my low back, mm -hmm. which I never had before. And it's not back pain. It's not an injury. It's literally just stiffness. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. for someone like me, what would you recommend? And also uh, just an addendum to that question. What do you feel like the difference is between rolling before say your yoga practice or roll and rolling after? Oh, okay. So two, two separate questions. So the thing about the low back stiffness is movement will, re, you know, restore fluid flow. So one of the things I like to do for the lower back is first I go to the abdomen. So if my back hurts, I don't just stick a ball on my back. I usually want to see, well, what's the opposite thing saying, right? Cause your, uh, trunk musculature is spherical and it's uh, like a giant fluffy egg, maybe not fluffy. <laughs> it's like a giant egg. So I would put the gorgeous ball in my abdomen and do different breathing and different contract, relax movements. Then I would put it in my side and lay with the gorgeous ball. And you can deflate it a little bit if you want, if it's too much pressure. So the gorgeous ball is a really good fit between the bottom of the rib cage and the top of the pelvic bone. And then you can do little pelvic, pelvic tuck and untucks while you organize different breathing strategies. And that immediately is going to start to heat up from the superficial to the deep, you go to the other side, to the other side, and then place the gorgeous ball on your thoracolumbar fascia, which is the, the grand connective tissue continuity that connects your lats, your obliques, your transversus abdominis erector spinae. And the, trans, the uh, thoracolumbar fascia, you know, part of that stiffness is just needing to get movement in the transition zones in that low back. And so this immediately will re essentially rehydrate that area hmm. and it should restore. I mean, I don't, you know, if you're like, there's, you know, there's no bony issue. There's no, I don't have chronic, you know, contracture in my mm -mm. QL. So that would be something that, that might be a really lovely, you know, perimeter torso perimeter, little gorgeous moment for you. Yeah. 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 And then your second question was, what was your second question? What do you feel is the difference between rolling before practice versus rolling after? Mm -hmm. Oh, great. So I know you had doctor, almost doctor. Yeah. Our doctor, yeah. Robin Capobianco on the other day. And she is kind of, she's going to change the landscape of some of the biases against doing myofascial release work pre-exercise. Cause what she found was doing a combination of stretch with the yoga tone of therapy ball rolling actually improved not only range of motion, which was expected, but it surprisingly improved torque force. So it, it, it improved muscle force output, which means higher performance. So I'm a huge fan of using the yoga tune up balls or cordless ball, whatever ball I'm going to use pre-performance one, because it improves my, my fluidity 
Um, and it helps me with my mapping. Like I, I'm just one of those, you know, hypermobile lost in space people. So for me, the therapy balls have always been so great about locating structure. Mm. And so I can bring body awareness using the tool as a body awareness focusing type of event. And, and it's not just like the conscious awareness, the unconscious awareness flows in there too. So that the proprioception improves and then the motor control improves. So pre-performance, we know that we're actually getting excellent performance outcomes based on her study and also based on lots of other anecdotal stuff. I've got a great story in the role model about a weightlifter friend who crushed a state title after using the gorgeous ball to help him calm down between uh, rounds. And post-performance, the therapy ball work is excellent because it's going to downregulate you. And it will help bring fluid and massage back to those areas that you might have overtaxed. Mm -hmm. So I think before or after are both great ways to use it. If you're going to just choose to use it before or after, uh, I don't know. It just depends on what your, what outcomes you want. If you want to have a really good night's sleep, if you, if you know, if you're like, I run at 7.30 PM at night, um, and then I do a little stretching afterwards, I would say, well, then after you're stretching, then do some rolling because you want to set the stage for a really quiet night. Like if I ran at night, I don't think I'd sleep very well. First of all, I'm not going to run, yeah. <laughs> but that, no, I will, I'll run again. I do. I will run again, but not for exercise. I'll just run for joy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about my hip. Cause that's the one thing my surgeon was like, well, look, you can run on the hip, but you know, if you run train for marathons all the time, you might need a new hip, you know, with yeah. your prosthesis. And I'm like, he says, you probably won't, but I was like, don't worry about it. I'm not going to run marathons. Totally. You're like, yeah, not, we can, can let, let that, let that go. Anyway, but what I'm saying is if you want to really deeply relax before you go to sleep, you know, set the stage for that by doing your rolling practice after, but I'd say a little bit before, a little bit after. Uh huh. That's a nice split. I don't do any seated meditation now until I roll, which has, it's been so helpful to me. Mm. I used to not really be able to sit unless I had just done a full yoga practice uh -huh. or I was in a group setting. Like I could sit, you know, if other people were just that feeling and energy in the room and stuff, but I couldn't like wake up and sit, but now I can. I might be wrong. I think Robin, they timed the intervals. They kept measuring range of motion, I think up to 15 minutes after. I don't know if they did it 30 minutes after, but if you roll and then sit for 15 or 20 minutes, it's like you're in that golden time where the range of motion persists, that increase in range of motion gain stays. So it's like do a little rolling, calm yourself down, get centered, sit, and you're not going to have, um, you know, hopefully you'll be able to maintain that the loveliness of your open joints right, for the right, duration right. of your meditation. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask one more pain related question. So, and you know, you're there right now because you've just had major surgery. If someone is having chronic pain, you know, and you're rolling to try to relieve that, mm -hmm. how do you work with that without overdoing? Well, it's such a complex question. So if you have chronic pain and you find that the balls relieve you, then that's, you know, that's a great input. And I would, I would use it as an additive to help manage that pain. 
it's certainly not going to be the only thing that changes the game. I mean, if you haven't tried it, then maybe try it. If you're doing the therapy ball work, but you still feel that, you know, five hours later, all your pains come back. Well, you know that it staves off the onset. You know, it has a time, it has a, a time threshold for you and whatever other stimuli are contributing to that pain, whether it's internal or external, they're still present. So I think that with, with pain management, I think there's so many different things you have to constantly look at to help you with that. Maybe I can use this as a, a strange, a story that about, you know, my, like my hip. I don't know if I told this when we had the hip talk, but I flew to Germany twice within five months, not knowing I had a degenerating hip with my child, with my infant. And I had no pain. I, and I thought for sure, cause you know, flying would be a, a trigger where I would feel a little spasm in my rec, my uh, TFL. So two round trips to Germany and I had no pain and it made no sense to me. <laughs> it made no sense. Cause I'm yeah. like, I have this kid and I'm nursing him and not sleeping and he's not sleeping. And it was, you know, all those factors, but there was something about maybe the novelty of being in a foreign country or the adventure I was on. Something didn't permit the chronicness of the owie pain that would come infrequently to show up at all. And I just thought that was bizarre. So we know that pain is so multifactorial. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that, you know, only in the balls are not a bandaid, like they need to be used in context with a more comprehensive thing. But if you haven't tried it, I'm such a huge fan of it. That's why I, I sell them that it's something to add in to whatever you're doing and to keep, keep searching for ways of ameliorating the, the issue. And yeah. if it has to go down the medical path, you know, it may, it may have to, but there, there are so many factors that contribute to why we experience pain sometimes and why we don't other times. It's so true. Oh my gosh. I used to, when I was at yoga journal and I was sort of at the height of the most stressful time of being there, that's when I had my RSI and, you know, I did everything, every kind of therapy, every kind of PT, every kind of test, because it was just not going away. And my intelligent, wise husband said, you need to stop working so much. And then the RFI then it, diminished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and along with, along with all the other physical things I was doing, you know, to, to help it along. But yes, it was, it was absolutely so nervous system, physio physiologically, mentally, all related. It was all God, related. Can we stop being American? Like, oh. I, can we, how do we do this, Andrea? I don't, know. We, I don't know. I don't know. Thank we, you, Jason. That I know. <laughs> so loving. I'm seriously. I know he, he, yeah. Yeah. I think one of his major life skills is he can zero in and be so logical on about problem solving. He's like the most logical with, with other people. It's harder for him to do it with himself, <laughs> of course, but yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to have Robin on again. We're going to talk next week about what we're going to talk about, but I'm thinking we might end up talking about a lot of the work she's done with the balls and you have your, are you writing another book or do you have a published date? Mm -hmm. And what's, what's oh, yeah, the focus the published of that date. one? Uh, I hope my publisher's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's not listening. Yeah, I really thought that I was going to be able to write during 
my downtime with the with the hip recovery, but uh, that really wasn't the case. I've done very little writing. I mean, I have, I've written, but not the amount I thought I'd be able to like finish it. So, and I need to be okay with that because the book is about resiliency to a certain degree. And, you know, from an outside perspective, people might think, wow, Julia, you're so resilient, but this has tested my resiliency to like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm starting from zero again. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like I'm starting from zero and I'm really working on being in acceptance about that Mm -hmm. because I don't like accepting that I'm not, you know, a rubber band, Mm -hmm. right? So yes, they're supposedly the published date, (laughs) um, the turn-in date is in June and the published date would be a few months after that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really hoping for a 2018 release. I have a lot of work ahead of me. I'm so excited by it though. And yeah, I'm, I'm very inspired by the work. It's, it's about my inside out approach to core work, hmm. which has a lot to do with, with the breath and the nervous system and, you know, the ribs <laughs> and things like that. Things cool. I'm interested in. Yeah. Cool. 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 So, and people can follow you on Instagram to, if, for when you get closer to, to publishing to, they can follow me now. I'm so interesting. <laughs> <on> Instagram. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Yeah. No, um, follow me now. Like talk to me. I've had so many amazing conversations with your listeners oh, nice. on, you know, Insta and I guess Facebook too. Yeah. This has been a real, a real treat to talk to your yoga land followers um, they're really smart. Yes. A lot of, a lot of wise questions. That's awesome. And I just feel so much momentum in the, the universe of people being okay with the evolution of yoga. Not just that yoga helps you evolve, but no, no, no. The yoga has to evolve. And I'm really encouraged by the inquiry and the okayness with that at this point it has to be we're we're not we're not ancient humans we are modern humans right you know I feel similarly it's a pretty exciting time I mean it's a really exciting time and I feel like there are a lot of smart people out there thinking about these things and talking about these things and and you're one of them so so thanks so much Jill thanks for being here again I'm so excited to publish these episodes I think they'll be really helpful I hope there are some questions that have been answered about fascia and for more questions about that, we do answer questions about fascia people. I promise <laughs> you we have many answers yeah. and, and raise many more questions, but there are resources. And I think I mentioned on the first podcast, one of my, my favorite new books is by David Lezendak, fascia, what it is and why it matters. It's really a great book, guys, get it, read it four times and come to tune-up fitness trainings and role model trainings. You'll learn more about it. Cool. All right. Thanks, Jill. Peace. Thanks as always for listening. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 90. If you have any more questions about fascia, send them my way. You can always reach me at support at jasonyoga.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review. It's helpful for me in terms of seeing the podcast on iTunes. It's also helpful for me to get the feedback that you enjoyed this episode. Until next week, enjoy your practice.